Hello and welcome to Hometown Daily. Today is Season 2, Episode 206 for July 25th, 2023. Nathia Jimmy Buffetti in Paradise. It'll all make sense <laughs> when we get into the articles. So I am Marwat, that is hometown.com, and up there is the AI that keeps tabs of me so that I don't, I don't know, fall on my face and make an ass of myself. Sometimes it works. You want to introduce yourself? <laughs> sure. Good evening, hometown citizens. I don't plan to do any of that tonight during the show, but we'll see. <laughs> oh, wait. I've... I've already stumbled. So we've already got all 12 of today's articles. Uh, you can go over to uh, the election that is here in Omtown. You go to omtown.com slash um, uh, elections. And uh, you can actually get there by going to, um, well, you can type in chat exclamation point vote and it'll give you the URL. You can mash that URL and then go vote for the articles that you find are interesting. Now, we haven't gone through them yet, so you might want to wait until later, which people tend to do. Um, I will be throwing the URLs into the chat, which become part of the VOD, but they don't translate over to the podcast or to YouTube. So there are show notes that will be created and put into the uh, podcast, the VOD and uh, YouTube. And YouTube is over there for long-term storage since uh, Twitch doesn't really have long-term storage, 60 days. And uh, we've been doing this for a year and a half now, over a year and a half. So uh, somewhere around 520 or something like that uh, episodes. I can't remember. We go season by season, day by day. Every single day is an episode. Um, that said, let's get into today's articles. Um, the very first article is in the Smack Talks channel, and it is Apple slammed with a $1 billion class action lawsuit in UK, over a 30% app store fee. Um, I am on the fence about this because the claim is that it's a monopoly, but it's not really a monopoly, it's a vertical. It's their one-stop shop solution. You go to the app store, it's for their product. They manufacture their own product. Um, I'm, I'm stymied by this because without the app store, obviously the solution is weaker, but by default, the hardware that they develop, that they manufacture, that they bring to market, it's all under their own name. They don't license it to anybody else to resell. You know, it's not like an OEM thing. They are the only thing for their product, for their ecosystem. They provide the security for their ecosystem. Um, the vehicle by which it gets distributed, they do the marketing and a great amount of discovery based on everything that I've seen and everyone that I've spoken to, the discovery is pretty damn good. Um, others might have a differing opinion of it. Um, and really it's about opinion. 
but a 30% commission means that they, the developers get 70%. I, I am troubled justifying, uh, Apple taking less considering how much protections they provide to the end user, the vehicle by which people are downloading the software, uh, the entire ecosystem that is Apple. Well, and of course they wouldn't have access to all of the users without the app store, as we've talked about in previous episodes. Yeah. And you know, the refrain that I get from people that, okay. So when I'm not mayor, I work with a lot of people that are in business of one type or another. Um, and, uh, the refrain that I get from people who develop apps for the app store and for Android, um, the Google play stores. And uh, anyway, the, they say, well, you know, uh, Apple wouldn't have all of those games, all of those apps, all of that, um, ability, if not for the developers. And so it's basically two sides pointing at each other saying, no, it's your fault. No, it's your fault. No, it's your fault. And 30% is being coined as greedy and monopolistic, uh, in the sense that they can demand 30%, but there is no competition. Well, yeah, I don't want competition for the app store because what I want is greater protection. I want the inability for anybody else to tamper with the security of the network, with the devices, with the, the network that these devices attach to, for instance, if they open up this to third parties and I allow somebody on my domestic, my local network here in hometown, um, they connect to my network. They could be compromised because they've sideloaded something. Um, and which is the reason why I actually break off an entire guest account that is separate from the rest of hometown. Well, if you allow third-party app stores, you're going to run into this problem where they're a little bit more lackadaisical about the security because they don't have the billions of dollars that Apple has to dedicate to auditing the source code when it's submitted to the app store. And they do that and then they find stuff and they punt people off. Now we don't hear about that all the time. Why? Because the people that are compromised aren't going to be running around saying, Hey, my app didn't meet security requirements. So Apple kicked it off of the network. You're not you going to hear. You don't want that. to draw attention to that. No, usually not. Um, so, uh, I don't think that this is a class action. This is a single provider providing one solution. Now there's other things that are monopolistic in nature with other companies, but I don't think Apple does anything monopolistic. They are open to anybody who wants to conform to the rules and requirements that protect the, the, the users. Um, so I don't know. I, I'm stuck arguing with, um, myself because what I want is more profit for apps that I put into the app store. But I also don't want third party apps 
com uh, competing, not third party apps, but third party stores. That's what the EU wants. Um, and I don't think that there is, I, you know, I want more profit. I want developers to take more money home. Um, but if Apple can't provide the services and infrastructure required off of 20% or 15%, well, what I think though is nobody would ever be happy. Even if it was 15%, somebody would grouse about it being 15%. That's too much. That's too much. Now it's too much there too. Is it similar to the, um, issues we talked about um, regarding um, subscriptions to streaming services, uh, the content creators versus the platform. Essentially, um, it just being too much. The But they're uh, able to do antitrust or monopolistic uh, practices as leverage to force uh, a corporation to change their ways. Um, there's adequate third-party competition in the streaming platform because it isn't a vertical. It isn't, they're not, it's not like you're stuck in that ecosystem. Um, you can go to another streaming platform anytime you want to, and everything about it is free. Um, and just because you have your stuff configured for, you know, uh, Twitch, let's say, uh, going over to YouTube means fiddling around with some settings, not being w completely without because you can't easily put apps on an iPhone without the app store. You have to do much more. So, but at the core of it is the amount of money, right? So if it, if the result of the company's app distribution monopoly is the reason why they've got 30% commission, how little of a commission is okay to remove the claims that it's uh, a monopolistic practice, right? I don't think any number would satisfy the other party. I mean... Either it's because a monopoly it's or not. A fundamental disconnect, right? It's a fundamental disconnect, and like if somebody's providing a platform, it seems like it would be reasonable to take a cut of that, whatever that number is. Right. So but, uh, people don't view it the same way depending on which side of the equation they're on. Back to the old statement that I've been making for years and years. Um, so. The uh, the articles over at AppleInsider.com, Wesley Hilliard is the author. And uh, I, that has to be a render. Hmm. It looks too kind of perfect. Anyway, um, they had a picture of the one, I think it's called One Apple Place or something like that. I can't remember what it, it says. Really Apple called. Park in the side. Yeah, uh, this is Apple Park, but the the location. Oh, of it, oh, um, I see. But yeah, this is one giant ring. It's pretty cool. Has a big old park inside it and other facilities inside. Um, pretty neat. I've never been there, but um, you know, you might want to do one of those treks to go and see it. Oh, wow! Oh. <clears throat> Pay homage to the apple gods 
So Apple charges developers up to 30% commission on transactions made on its platform. The fee has long been scrutinized by world governments and developers alike, but then so far it survived uh, scrutiny. The latest attack on app store fees comes from a group of almost 1600 app developers in the UK. According to a report from Reuters, uh, the group has started a class action lawsuit against Apple on the basis that the fee is excessive and the result of uh, monopoly by Apple on its uh, app distribution platform. But here's the key phrase, Apple's app distribution platform. Um, now <laughs> I can understand that if there's other things going on, like what happened with Microsoft, Microsoft was literally forcing people to only use its browser on its platform but not because there was some technical limitation. They were saying you wouldn't, you will not be allowed to license our software if you don't make our browser the only browser on the computer when you distribute your, when you sell your equipment. There's a plurality of vendors. There's a plurality of uh, additional value added software that was tacked onto it. But when it came to trying to get market dominance for browsing the web, they forced OEMs to only use X, right? The fundamental difference is though, that Apple was licensing software to the, for the operating system on a plurality of OEMs. They didn't manufacture a single damn thing. It wasn't their solution. It was a whole bunch of other people throwing on a bunch of stuff into a gray box. Whereas Apple's is even if you were not to install any other software right out of the box, they've developed every tool you need to utilize Apple products from beginning to end. Is it lacking for everybody's particular use? Yes. That's when you install aftermarket software, but right out of the box, you've got everything you need. And it's entirely made by Apple. Other monopolistic practices are they had no real competitive advantage to hold control over web browsing. So they forced it by using monopolistic practices. You can't use our operating system if you don't make ours the dominant browser. And only through litigation, monopolistic, uh, it was antitrust litigation against Microsoft. Did they bow and allow multiple browsers to be installed by vendors? That's monopolistic, that's antitrust. Apple is providing a single vertical that just happens to be open to developers. And developers are being enriched by that walled garden well and i don't know i feel like apple like a lot of other large companies is one of those love hate um things with consumers yeah um apple discussed its 30 percent fee during the epic games trial it also said previously that 85 percent of developers on the app store do not pay a commission and that it helps European developers access markets and customers in 175 countries through the App Store. Multiple organizations and governments around the world have fought Apple's fee structure. Currently, with few exceptions, 
a developer owes Apple 30% of any transaction that occurs on its platform, and this is reduced to 15% uh, for subscriptions that last over a year. Um, <clears throat> so maybe a lot of money, but all of that is subjective. Uh, but 30% for you not having to mess around with point of sale and processing and engagement and discovery and all kinds of other things that are on the back end at, on the administrative and analytics side. Yeah, I think it's a value add. So 30% to me, eh, not a problem. Um, and I've had apps on the app store and I've pulled them because I have to babysit and I'm not a developer um, at the level that would make it <laughs> pragmatic for me to have apps regularly on the app store and they were on Google play. So anyway, um, I don't know. I find it a, a benefit. So, uh, at the end of the day though, we will end up talking about this as time goes on because there will be more regarding this particular case. And there's always somebody chomping at the heels of the big dog. So, uh, we'll keep an eye on it. Uh, the next article is over in the mobile channel. Teamsters UPS union wins historic contract, likely avoiding gigantic strike. My understanding is that they have agreed to not have a strike. Um, <laughs> now, how, <laughs> how long, maybe that will change uh, next year, uh, but we'll see. Teamsters and UPS have reached a, an historic contract agreement, likely averting a, an economically devastating strike of over 340,000 unionized UPS workers, according to an announcement by the Teamsters on Tuesday. Um, I mean, that means all of us can get our fill in the blank, whatever consumer goods we buy. That's right. I mean, it's beyond consumer goods, too. But um, yeah. So this article is by Jules Roscoe um at vice.com uh, the deck statement is the overwhelmingly lucrative contract raises wages for all workers creates more full-time jobs and includes dozens of workplace protections and improvements yay finally probably getting air conditioning in their damn trucks um i think it's i think it's high time for that um and maybe they can make left and right hand turns probably not you know, that would be going a little bit too far. Yeah. Um, let's see here. The new contract guarantees a $2.75 per hour wage increase this year, a $7.50 increase over the life of the contract, which five-year agreement. Um, the new minimum pay for part-time workers will be $21 per hour effective immediately. The contract will keep UPS Teamsters the highest paid delivery drivers in the United States. The contract also includes guaranteed health and safety promises, safety and health protections, and increased prices for all package delivery services. Oh, that's not what it says. I'm sorry. That wasn't on there. <laughs> that I, that, oh, I, I was filling in the Mad Lib that is going to be our future for delivery from UPS. It's going to go up. Hey, do you know how many um, package deliveries per day UPS makes? No. This was going to affect, say, I think I saw 30% in one of our prior articles. I know now. 27 but... million packages per day in the U.S. So this Did is you get kind it from of a big article? deal if this is averted. No, I had oh. to look. Um, 
I was looking up some statistics separately. It says 20.7 here. Did they mess up? I don't know, because the $27 million, or $27 million package stat was from um, a 2022 report. So I don't know, maybe it's dipped a little bit, but. I don't know, maybe they've got just this an estimate. wonky. It's from this, uh, it's quoted. Maybe they got it wrong. I don't know, but this says 20.7. Maybe they they moved the decimal around. Yeah, or it's I see an what old... you mean, but the point is there's a lot of packages. <laughs> Is that the point, though? We have to be yes. we have to be accurate, <laughs> accurate and, and precise. <laughs> That's the only thing that matters. It's the only thing we've got. It makes you think it was transcribed verbally or something, right? Maybe the an 27. AI. <laughs> yeah, exactly. a, a different AI, a non-sentient AI. Maybe you should go and talk to that AI. 12 days before the contract expired, uh, the Teamsters announced that UPS had bowed to Teamster pressure and asked to reopen negotiations after our hiatus of two of over two weeks. Yeah, well, they basically said, uh, we're all prepped and ready to go on full strike. And they notified them, look, everybody's ready to go. So I guess they felt the impending doom uh, coming and their fiscal responsibility was to uh, figure out a real solution to this so uh, good on them well let's see now i think the teamsters needs to go and talk to the wga um and uh <laughs> and <There you> go. <laughs> and get the writers and the actors uh all uh working again sag after so, yeah yep. exactly yeah. i don't know there's something about not having a 45% profit margin year after year and uh, essentially forcing everybody into indentured servitude. Distribute the wealth so that everybody has more and you will ultimately have more, a more stable workforce, a happier workforce, a more capable workforce. Uh, it, it's all just so uh, greed economics greedonomics there you go that's a good word um let's keep on hustling i've been soapboxing quite a bit now the next article is over in the mobile channel scientists discover a new isopod species in the florida keys and with all of the stuff that gets thrown out there i'm pretty sure this thing could have spontaneously evolved from a rock an you international team of, i'm sorry you think it's a mutant or mutation from some of the other news stories from some when you see it because i actually looked at the article a little bit um that's how i got the title of the show um when you see it you're like oh, that looks like an ant and uh, a lobster and it it's a little too creepy um so again this is over in the mobile channel scientists discover new isopod species in the florida keys you know I'm just going to go over there and there you go. Boom. It, it, it looks like an ant and a, and a lobster. It's weird. And right? you know, this was submitted because of the name, right? Not just because of the discovery. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we'll get there unless you want to talk about it. Now scientists discover new isopod uh, species in the Florida Keys University of Miami Rosenstiel School of Marine Atmospheric and Earth Science put the article together for fizz.org Okay, here we go. 
The study, titled Morphological Description and Molecular Characterization of Nathia Jimmy Buffetti, um, is the first new Nathid or Nathid um, in 100 years from the Floridian ecoregion. And it was published on June 12th, 2023 in the journal Bulletin of Marine Science. So it's five o'clock somewhere for this thing. And uh, (laughs) it's called a cryptid. Is that right? Yeah. Let me make sure. Yeah. Cryptofauna. Um, Cryptofauna are tiny hidden organisms that make up the majority of biodiversity in the ocean. The roughly three millimeter long isopod is one of only 15 species from the genus Nathia. If I'm pronouncing it, I I don't know if it's Nadia and it's a silent H, but anyway, um, currently known in the region. There's only 15 in the region. When they talk about a region, I don't know what that region is. Is it 20 miles offshore and a circle (laughs) around... What is a region? So it's named after Jimmy Buffett. Uh, I dig this. So, I mean, that's great. You know, you've really made it when you get an isopod named after you. That's right. (laughs) I can only think of two species. I'm sure there's more, but named after modern living people. Really? So there's Jimmy Buffett and and which one? Right. And then there was the fungus named after... um, um, I think it was actually named after John Wick, not after, or was it after the actor? Um, no, it was after Keanu Reeves. Yeah, it was Keanu Reeves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Um, a lot of times, though, the research, the discoverer names it after either themselves or a family member or something. Um, so Sorry, I'm not I should surprised. have said like non-scientists, but yeah. Yeah, like somebody famous or not themselves, you know. Um. It's, <laughs> I guess you, you go, well, let's call it Jimmy Buffetti. Um, when you've already discovered others, I wonder if this person has discovered so many that they're like, I don't want to name it after myself. I've got like 15 things that are a derivative of my last name. Um, so the newly discovered species, Nathia Jimmy Buffetti, um, which is a member of a group of crustaceans called Natid isopods were collected using light traps set in shallow water and characterized using photomicrographs and genetic sequencing. Um, And it says upon examination, it was determined that it was a species that was previously unknown to science, said senior investigator Paul Sickle, a research professor in the Department of Marine Biology and Ecology at the Rosenstiel School. It's the first new Florida natted to be discovered in 100 years. I'm, I keep seeing uh, Jimmy Buffett and uh, I'm keep thinking about cheeseburgers in paradise and <laughs> stepping on a pop top and looking for their, oh, the last, sa- uh, last uh, shaker of salt or whatever yeah. <laughs> for Margaritaville. Man, now I'm going to be thinking about that and this thing tied together. Nadia I mean, that Jimmy might be Buffetti. quite brilliant to name it after Jimmy Buffett because it might appeal to people outside of the scientific community. I mean, and obviously there's the location connection. But. Yeah. I mean, calling it something that's entertaining kind of draws people into it. What the heck is that? Maybe 
Oh, since the species was discovered in the Florida Keys and Sickle and his team are longtime fans of Jimmy Buffett's music, which is synonymous with the Florida Keys, they named the new species Jimmy Buffetti after the music legend. Yeah, that's kind of obvious to me. Um, oh, there you go. I'm right. So by naming a species after an artist, we want to promote the integration of the arts and sciences, said Sickle, whose research team named a similar species from the Caribbean after Bob Marley, Nathia Marleyi. I did not know about that. Ah, oh, so there's a third for you. I, I'm starting to believe that when you get like preeminent level of in the domain that you research, you start just riffing like, uh, well, I've discovered this. I've discovered this. I've discovered this. And maybe it just gets boring and you got to make it more exciting now that you're discovering so many things. Pretty cool. One Did day. You see the thing where they were basically stating that the artists have nothing to do with parasites. <laughs> oh, really? That was near the end. Yeah. Uh, let me scroll down. Sorry. Uh, where does the researchers uh, emphasize? The last, yeah. <laughs> uh, the researchers emphasize that while these organisms have a parasitic lifestyle, they are in no way likening these artists, whom they admire and respect, <laughs> to parasites. <laughs> You know, it really depends on who it is that you're talking to about this. They're like, yeah, Jimmy Buffett's a parasite. <laughs> uh, oh, man. To live that lifestyle would be amazing, you know, just hanging out at the beach and drinking margaritas and whatnot. Yep. Keep well, now this isopod can do that. Uh, well, the isopod's probably always been doing that. And then somebody snatches it up with a light trap and starts poking it to see its genetics. Hey, get off me. Get off me. Hey, so what do you do when a mystery company buys nearly $1 billion worth of land near an Air Force base? Yeah, you kind of freak out a little bit. Apparently, this has happened several times now. I'm going to just go over to the source, which is emilyfinn at thehill.com, who put this article together. Video has nothing to do with it. A group called Flannery Associates has invested nearly a billion dollars uh, purchasing 54,000 acres of land surrounding the Travis Air Force Base since 2018. <clears throat> Pardon me. Um, and, uh, let's see, it's zoned for agricultural use, public records show, but people are trying to figure out what the hell it really is that they're doing. Um, and that they think that it's going to be a national security concern. Um, just to summarize really quick, this has happened several times. I've known about it because I've seen, um, the arguments against allowing, typically foreign investors from buying agricultural land and strategic land near military bases. This has happened with Chinese owned companies. This company is responding that they are not Chinese owned. They don't have any Chinese major investors. Um, and, uh, I'm really curious about what it might be. So yeah. Look at their quote. I mean, it says no foreign person or group holds any significant interest of, of substantial control. So there is some foreign ownership. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is a, a, a large holding company that might be purchasing real estate. 
My problem is that I don't want any external country owning any of the domestic real estate that has to do with the food supply chain. Plain and simple. Um, you know, just like I would suspect that there are other countries that want that same strategic and tactical advantage. They don't want control over their foodstuffs owned wholly by some other country. Um, particularly uh, countries that are outright hostile to another country, right? Like, <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense. And I'm... <laughs> I have no problem with people investing in companies, but wholesale ownership of uh, the food supply has been a problem. So it, it says here nearly 384,000 acres of agricultural land in the U.S. is controlled by China and the rate at which they're purchasing land is growing exponentially. The USDA reports Chinese ownership of American farmland has increased by 55%. But that's a weird percentage stat with no context because what is 55%? If they're only buying a thousand acres, then who cares if they're buying 1500 acres? You know, it just doesn't matter. But 75% of it is located in the south, 16% of it is on the west coast. Um, I, but I'm a huge proponent, and the way that I see this is rather siloed. What I want is uh, micro farms for each community so that it is local, hyper-local. It's facilitating that particular uh, community, um, providing jobs, providing sustenance. It's defensible. It's controllable. It isn't a mega corporation that owns it. Um, and uh, for me, what I'm a pro proponent of is hydroponics because it has a greater um, overall, uh, protective nature. So you can go into an, a hydroponics warehouse and the crop that you recover is going to be dramatically more as a proportion, um, of the total amount, um, because it's under much more control. There's no predation. There's no wastage. Um, if you do it right, you're not even using soil. You're you're using nutrients that would normally be found in the soil, but you don't have to worry about all of the other stuff. Like right now, microplastics are starting to permeate farmland. Uh, but we've talked about all of that kind of stuff before. So um, foreign countries buying land near Air Force bases, um, purchasing land that is the breadbasket of the United States. Um, I kind of want, I want it all domestic, you know, um, no external influence. For me, it's bad enough that fossil fuels are almost wholly imported, even though the United States has the ability to utilize domestic resources. But I know that strategically and tactically, you want to keep as much as you can in the ground domestically because that's where it's safe and it doesn't degrade the moment it gets pulled up from the ground it gets processed and starts degradation um, so you buy it from other places that are willing to sell it 
well, <laughs> at some point they can just turn it off because now they don't have enough um, or they want an exorbitant rate. All right. Anyway, let's keep on going through the news. There's quite a bit, unless you have anything else that you want to add to this article. Oh, all right. No, I don't have anything bad. Uh, the next article is over in the Smack Talk channel. Uh, Apple TV Plus scores John LaCare documentary, The Pigeon Tunnel. Uh, when you first read that title, you think, oh, it's a, a, a documentary called The Pigeon Tunnel, and it's uh, about something. But it's actually about John LaCare. Um, Malcolm Owen is the author and, um, it's over at, uh, appleinsider.com and it says, uh, Apple original films is bringing out the documentary, the pigeon tunnel, um, in October detailing six decades of the life of famed author and former spy, John Le Carre, uh, it's, um, it's actually, uh, their pen name, their real name is David Cornwell. So their nom, nom de guerre, I finally got to say that, um, is uh, John Le Carre, former British spy, author of espionage novels, um, which have been turned into movies. The spy who came in from the cold, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, in a new documentary from Apple Original Films, The Pigeon Tunnel, will delve into the history of the famed writer. Interestingly enough, though, it's being put together by the Ink Factory, whose co-founders happen to be Cornwell's sons. Um, in connection with Academy Award winning documentarian Errol Morris. Um, and there's more in this article. Um, I feel weird saying this because I think it's. I, I, I don't know how to say it other than just to blurt it out, but this is all of the credentials that are lending the value to the production of this documentary. Um, it's everybody else around them. <laughs> so I just find it really um, interesting that this is what the whole, the whole article is this. Um, and that's who's making this thing it's going to be a powerful documentary about John Le Carre, um, who I think is a great writer and people who turn his books into movies or series seem to have so much ammunition, um, you know, arrows in their quiver because of the style of writing. Um, the just terrific writing. If you, I mean, you, yeah, just go and look up, John Le Carre and you'll see it's just amazing reviews and, and people really dig them. So anyway, um, I'll be you know, watching. I read a, a pretty comprehensive interview, um, about him and I found it very interesting. So if this documentary touches on any of that, I think it should be worth watching. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure that this is going to be pretty amazing. Um, so yeah, if you, if you've never seen Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, the actors that are in, uh, that movie are spectacular and the writing is what empowers them. Uh, just the style. I mean, it, it leaves just enough to the imagination, but is so rich that you, you basically get immersed in the writing. Um, so it's pretty, pretty spectacular. Uh, we should do like a, 
Anyway, I have all of these ideas while we're still doing a show and I need to just stop that. Anyway, go and check it out. Um, let me make sure that I throw this into the chat. We're kind of going, we're only a third of the way through the show folks. So, uh, the next article, uh, this one will be really fast because, um, you can go and watch, uh, over on YouTube. I already talked about this. It's a short 20 or so minute, um, review of three new Starfield animated shorts that offer more glimpses of Bethesda's new universe. I refer to it as world building. Um, uh, but if you go over to hometown on YouTube, or if you, uh, look at the VODs here on Twitch, um, you'll get my commentary uh, on these. Um, I, what the article says is uh, Starfield will be released in just over a month. And on Tuesday, uh, developer Beth Bethesda Game Studios released three animated shorts as part of an anthology series called Starfield, The Settled Systems. Um, and they describe the shorts. So, and by shorts, I mean animated vignettes, not things that uh, you wear. <laughs> <clears throat> So Jay Peters over at the verge, put this article together. And before I really do transition away, there you go in chat. Um, so what I found interesting about these is that there's no voice acting. There's no, uh, there's no nothing there. There's, there wasn't any writing. There wasn't any, uh, storytelling other than the visuals that um, so these serve no, okay. So <laughs> if you're trying to appeal to a broad number of people, then you have audio, you have video. Um, but there isn't anything here other than video, um, and some music. So accessibility means that no, anybody who doesn't have direct vision, um, you know, complete with great fidelity, they're not going to be able to enjoy this because it doesn't have anything else to it. Um, as far as I could tell, there might be other tools that facilitate it, but, um, the three areas introduce what amounts to the, the trouble and strife that people are going through in, um, Starfield and they tell the story without any words, without introducing anybody really. Um, there's a description that runs through it. They're not all that very long. Um, I think they're like five minutes each. Um, I'll play. Oh yeah. This one's only two and a half. So somewhere around that range. Um, yeah, but they just are all less than three minutes. Yeah. Um, gotcha. And so they throw, they show a little star system and there's three stars that get highlighted and they talk about it. Um, uh, and, but they don't talk about it in the video. There's no audio other than music just playing through it. And, um, I found it, uh, telling, but a little dark because there's always somebody being assaulted or harmed or something. Um, or, the, the only one that seemed to be okay. And even then it's about conflict, um, was where 
the equivalent of an interstellar UPS driver says, well, I'm tired of being an, a UPS driver. I'm going to take to the skies in defense of my faction. And there's essentially six factions. I thought there were five, but I discovered a new one today. Um, and uh, that's what these uh, three little vignettes are all about. There isn't much else um, to them, so... Uh, you can you can go over to uh, hometown on youtube and watch them or um, hang out here and check out the vods here in hometown on twitch and um, watch that in my commentary about it uh, I'm, i basically make the same observation in my little starfield world building uh, 20 or so minute video i found it interesting timing that there's no voice acting and no text overlay. Um, so do you think that has anything to do with the strikes? <laughs> that's what I say, um, that it landed right in the sweet spot. Perfect storm of not being able to, now they may say something different. Bethesda may say, may say, no, it, it was always planned this way. It's not a big deal or anything like that. Um, but, um, for me looking from the outside in, uh, my observation was that so anyway um, let's keep on hustling through the articles uh, the next article is over in the hometown daily channel and that's this show uh, the title of this article is this Mexican entrepreneur builds houses out of bricks made from invasive seaweed and then he gives them away I think it's the houses not the bricks but I guess he gives the I bricks hope away. He doesn't give the bricks away after he builds the houses. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm going to give the person a house and then give away the bricks. Um, one by is, one. Yeah, one by one. Uh, you better find a new place to live because this house is coming down. Uh, millions of tons of sargassum wash up on beaches across North America every year. Exposure can lead to breathing problems and it causes millions to or it costs millions to clean up. Now one Mexican entrepreneur is building houses out of bricks made from the invasive species. What do you think this smells like? I was actually thinking, what do you think it is like in say 10 or 20 years? Like, does it hold up? I mean, it's biological material. Right. Yeah, I don't know. Um, it this looks like you know red, uh, like Adobe brick. You know, I, I, it looks pretty good, although it looks a little brittly. You know, um, but maybe that's just part of the manufacturing process. This is what he has right here is a standard industrial brick maker, a cinder block maker, um, like uh, for the project that I'm working on this is what i need but not for cinder blocks it's a for a special mold um and uh so you you basically go okay i'm gonna be making cinder blocks so let me throw a bunch of seaweed in it oh look it holds its shape i'm really curious because i've seen this before but i didn't pursue investigating it because i i didn't want to know too much about it but it's a video you have to go over to businessinsider.com and watch this video um, and, and really that's all it is, is they're, they're taking sargassum and they're mixing it with something and it's not the green, 
it's the the dead and and decomposing sargassum um there there's different types of seaweeds um and there's three different types and uh, i think sargassum once it's like brown and just sitting there you can just scoop it up mix it with something form it into this brick it'll dry out i, I but now i want to know more um so i'm just going to tease everybody into going and watching this video so the articles again over at uh, businessinsider.com it's put together by will story manuel silva paulus and ryan bieber i don't know if he has anything to do with justin bieber <laughs> let's keep going probably um, not but i suspect that person here is that a lot <laughs> yeah really uh not another person comparing me to Justin Bieber. Um, I'll make them sing a different tune. I tell you one day. Um, the next article is over in the word in law FCC chair speed standard 25 megabits down three megabits up. Isn't good enough anymore. I agree. They want to move it to 100 down 20 up um, along with a goal of bringing affordable speeds to those um, to all Americans is what it says. Under her plan, the FCC would evaluate broadband availability speeds and prices to determine whether they to take regulatory action to promote network deployment and competition. The problem isn't the speed being too low. The problem is that there are corporations that own entire segments because they're not nobody else is allowed to use the overhead poles to deliver fiber optics and it's either regulatory capture where they can't run new underground tunnels um, because you can do horizontal drilling and run a new cable under streets under driveways blah 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 totally a doable thing um, but there's all this regulatory hurdles that you have to worry about so it's it becomes uh, impractical um, what needs to be done is more competition you know when a company owns the telephone poles but it's on public land or they've purchased 20 square feet and put a telephone pole in it so that they could hang their lines that is the thing that should be coined monopolistic practices and anti-competitive uh, uh, and antitrust it not not going well you know the things that y'all have even though you have almost no competition if you might as well just call it no competition because if one choice is domestic physical line and the other is this exotic uh, cellular or satellite technology, you really only have one choice for a stable, fast, reliable connection. And that's the wired connection in the ground or on the telephone pole. But you only have one provider of it in most places. It all gets carved up here in the States. I don't know how it is in other countries, um, but here in the States, you pretty much only have a select few um, because they've all chopped up the nation so that they get their own piece of the action. Anyway, um, it could finally change under Chairwoman Jessica Rosenworcel. Um, 
who thinks that it's gonna it's better if it gets bumped to 120 so 100 down and 20 up just give us 50 50 symmetric for crying out loud um see but the thing is that when it's kept artificially low like 25 and 3 they don't have to reinvest their their profits they can leave this old tech in the ground wait until it expires and then put another one equally crappy in place um and now they Meanwhile, do the prices keep going up and up and up for consumers but they're not getting anything better or they're not getting anything significantly better right yep the technology does change does evolve but you're not getting that at this price point at this technology you know um you can get two gigabit symmetric there's a company that's coming closer to uh Ometown right now that will allow for up to two gigabit um the problem is that they have to get over the regulatory hurdles because there's a company that already owns everything around Ometown. um so you're you're kind of up a creek the technology is there to blow this out of the water and it's relatively inexpensive because so much bandwidth can be run through fiber optics um, in a very small package so in the same package that would contain a copper wire you can have a hundred fiber optic lines and you get that much more bandwidth um, i mean just a massive difference between copper and fiber optic and don't tell me about the cost because we've already paid for this. You know, we paid for it 25 years ago. Arguably, but nobody we're paying seems for to it. remember that, right? Like nobody we keep paying and yes, paying. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It got it went from public to private. So, um, so the article is over at Ars Technica, and John Brodkin is the author. Chair proposes 100 megabit. Um, national standard and an evaluation of broadband prices. I don't want an evaluation of broadband prices. I want greater competition. Um, don't go after Apple folks go after the, uh, internet companies that are artificially hobbling the, the speed of the internet to 25 megabits down and three megabits up. Anyway, FCC required to study deployment. Section 706 of the Telecommunication Act requires the FCC to determine whether broadband is being deployed on a reasonable and timely basis to all Americans. If the answer is no, the U.S. law says that the FCC must take immediate action to accelerate deployment of such capability by removing barriers to infrastructure investment and by promoting competition in the telecommunications market. <laughs> oh, man lawmakers i mean when have we seen actual competition in the market yeah it, for this industry it's the competition to acquire to capture the regulatory uh market so that's that's really what the the uh the real competition is who can capture the regulators as fast as possible like pokemon gotta gotta catch them all um anyway we will see if this happens. And in the meantime, we'll keep on going through the news. Uh, the next article is uh, over in Late Night Geeks. Amazon will now warn consumers of recalls and product safety alerts related to their orders, which I think is an amazing uh, 
benefit now that one of the other problems that I have with this is there are many manufacturers that are selling products and there isn't enough full disclosure about what that product is, who actually manufactures it, if it has met the regulatory requirements for sale in the United States, if it is safe, if it's UL listed, et cetera, et cetera. It's not fully disclosed and obvious. And so this is just one step closer to um, providing consumers with accurate and reliable information from the source. You used to be able to go to a store and look at the equipment. Now you have to wait for it to land on your doorstep. So I think this is a great move. I think consumers, though, need to not rely solely on this because things could be mislabeled or something isn't caught on Amazon. Correct. I mean, there will definitely be recalls that are applicable that probably won't be announced. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, I've run across that myself where um, like a car dealership or manufacturer doesn't send out the recall, even though there was something that was significant that needed to be fixed. Well, uh, TechCrunch.com is the source of this article. Sarah Perez is the author of the article itself. It says when consumers clip on a ban clip, click on the banner or the emailed link, they'll be directed to a page where they can read more details about the potential safety hazards of products they've purchased and review their options like refunds, returns, and repairs. If you purchase anything, it's going to have a California recall probably. Uh, or safety warning, you know, that everything is toxic and potentially cancer-causing and whatnot. Um, it says here, with this new feature, we are able to directly reach 100% of customers uh, who have bought a recalled product in our store and provide clear instructions on what to do next, Amazon says in a blog post announcing the new feature. We regularly uh, talk about... Um, recalls here in hometown uh, not from hometown but um, in hometown we talk about all of those recalls that we stumble across in our news aggregation um, so we'll continue to do that but um, thankfully amazon biggest re what is it now it's it's more than it's the biggest online store um, for sure but it has everything from groceries to health products to clothing. Right. It's just everything. It's moved into almost every consumer industry. It doesn't necessarily do as much. Um, well, maybe it does. Maybe it does a lot of business to business too. But I think it of does. it as being more consumer focused. And there's stuff that it does that I've never even imagined. Like somebody like purchased something and instead of getting what they actually purchased, um, there was a a mix-up and they received like a sniper rifle um i think that was one of the things that i read a long time ago now um you might be able to find it if you do a search but well um, they provide a lot of services too it's yeah. not just goods yeah. right i mean uh, healthcare comes to mind but they do um they have cloud services they have music um books etc and when i yeah. say books like i'm thinking of kind of like a rental of those or a subscription but. yep um they've got all kinds of stuff it's funny because uh, we're talking about all of this other stuff and then it says down here at the bottom um of course one of the largest 
retail websites, Amazon will continue to face several product safety issues due to the size of its catalog. More recently, its recalls have included things like portable chargers recalled for being a, ha a fire hazard, as well as issues uh, stemming from its own brands like the Amazon Basics desk chairs that were recalled due to the possibility that their legs would break, posing fall and injury hazards. It also sold cups with unsafe lead levels and more. Um, this actually has led me to um, want to get one of those um, Geiger counters. You remember talking about the guy that was basically sitting there um, analyzing stuff uh, with a Geiger counter, and I thought that it would be interesting to see uh, what products would show up that have radiation levels attached to them. Um, pretty amazing. It would be good, but probably pretty alarming, but it's probably better to know it than not know it. Yeah, that's right. Um, so we'll keep on talking about this stuff. Um, thankfully, Amazon is going to be stepping into this fray. Uh, we need more information. I certainly want to know about who's manufacturing and who's truly selling. It used to not actually be listed who the real seller was of something. Um, and now it actually says it on a little on the website. I don't know about in the app where it is in the app, but on the website, you can actually see exactly who it is that's selling it and who's, um, where Who's it's fulfilling stored. it if it's not Correct. the same as the seller i like yeah. that because i want to know where the purchases are coming from yeah. i want the contact information as well so um cool it's one small step for consumers well one small step for amazon one giant leap for consumers so the next article is over in late night geeks and uh, this one is EU passes law to blanket highways with fast EV chargers by 2025. I don't know how this is going to be a, a possible solution. The amount of money that's going to, and infrastructure that's going to have to be put into this to be, you know, blanket the highways by 2025. Yeah. I have not seen what the article is really entailing as blanketing, but it says here that, um, the Council of the EU has adopted new rules intended to make it much easier for EV owners to travel across Europe while simultaneously helping to reduce the output of harmful greenhouse gases. Um, the article is over at theverge.com. It's in the chat right now if you want to follow it. Um, again, all you have to do to get to all of these articles immediately um, is to go to uh, type in exclamation point vote and it'll give you the URL to the election over on hometown.com. Um, the chargers must be placed every 37 miles. That's if you're interested in freedom units um, or 60 kilometers um, and allow ad hoc payment by card or contactless device without subscriptions. Yay. Um, wow. So progressive. I mean, this sounds amazing. Let's see if this happens. I think Wyoming just decided to secede. Um, Thomas Ricker is the author of this article over at the verge. You know, because Wyoming says that they're not going to do anything to facilitate EVs in their state. Um, so I guess they won't be blanketing highways with EV chargers. I know this is for the EU. Yeah. Yeah. They're going to have to blanket people um, because it's going to be freezing cold and there's going to be uh, dozens of 
dozens it's kind of funny because of arrested development dozens of electric vehicles stuck in the hills of wyoming um the new regulation is set to benefit electric uh cars and vans in three ways it reduces range anxiety i suffer that and i don't even have an ev um it makes payments at the pump easier without requiring an app and it ensures pricing and availability is clearly communicated to avoid surprises. My God, transparency and that empowerment way too reasonable. <laughs> it's almost like you want to, uh, have a bunch of consultants from the EU come over and tell Wyoming how to build its grid. Anyway, well, not just Wyoming. How about the whole U S <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think that a lot of states are progressive enough to do it. All they need is money. But Wyoming, uh, the reason why I pick on Wyoming is because they overtly said we're protecting the oil and gas companies by not embracing EVs. They flat out said it. I mean, how how in the pocket do you have to be to stymie progress, which benefits everybody for generations in the future without destroying the the world in the process I, anyway and it's I only know, my statement was not in favor of them it was just because the infrastructure is seriously lacking in the u.s right well my understanding is that when you cross into wyoming now they give you a horse and buggy um and the and an extra person it's kind of like how oregon used to require the pump to be uh, uh, your gas to be pumped by somebody else not you well now there's going to be a horse and buggy and an extra person that will fix your wagon wheels when they break because you're not allowed to have anything other than 1775 uh, equipment Anyway, the regulation also requires that ad hoc charging payments can be made via cards or contactless devices without a subscription. So, um, sounds good to me. The new law is a milestone for our fit for, is that 55 policy providing for more uh, public recharging capacity on the streets in cities and along the motorways across Europe. Why 55? Yeah, I don't know what the significance of the 55 is. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe if you're from the EU, you can tell us. It might be in this article, so. But that'll encourage you to come back and talk with us about what you are reading and what you're seeing. Um, Sounds like fun to oh, me. Oh, here we go. Oh, don't go. 55%. Um, they're trying to reduce net greenhouse gas emissions by at least 55% by 2030. You know, I was trying to get audience members to come and talk to us. And the EU decided. I know, I just ruined it. Or the, the <laughs> oh, it's right here in the article. It's right there in the article. All right. The next article. <laughs> you're so funny. The, the AI is like, I'm solving a problem, damn it. Um, so the next article is over on the Warcrafter channel, and I chose this simply because Dave the Diver. Dave the Diver was inspired by a real oceanside uh, seafood restaurant and Metal Gear Solid. So it, seem, it, it might seem strange to hear that a fishing and sushi restaurant management game was inspired in part by Metal Gear Solid series. Uh, 
but it makes more sense after you've played Dave the Diver. Sure, you spend a lot of time fishing and serving food, but among other surprises, the game has a few stealth sequences, including one where Dave has to slip past a bunch of armed goons on patrol. Um, yeah, it's a fun game. And um, it, the article is over at PCGamer.com. Christopher Livingston is the author. And the little deck statement that's here says, Game Director J.Ho Huang. Uh, tells us that uh, what games influenced Dave the Diver, which include Mystery Dungeon and Yakuza. Um, but the whole premise is built around the fact that he used to have a um, uh, a, a seafood uh, beachside restaurant uh, near him that inspired Dave the Diver. So sounds like fun. Um, I was inspired. It says the idea first came to me when they were on Jeju or uh, I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce it. Um, it's like when you first see Phuket Island, you want to pronounce it something else um, because phonetically it says something entirely different. But that's when I was a dummy about it anyway. Um, if anyone knows how to uh, phonetically pronounce this, uh, um, let me know. But it's if it's Jeju Island, um, then I nailed it first try. Which is kind of like the Hawaii of Korea, Wang uh, told uh, the author of this article. There was this restaurant by the sea there where the owner caught fish in the morning and cooked them for dinner. Uh, when they saw it, they would... Um, be something interesting to work with so they started to design a game based on this concept so what's interesting though is that a lot of restaurants do this um, if they are near uh, the ocean um, they get their fish almost either by themselves or they go to a local seafood market where they got it the, that morning anyway um, go and check out this article you'll dig dave the diver um, I'm going to throw this into the chat real quick and we'll go on to the last article for tonight. I wonder if anybody at the restaurant was named Dave. Dave's not home, man. I don't know. Let's see. Maybe they have it at the very bottom. I'm glad that you said something. Um, as far as other games, no. Um, they talk about other games, but let's see. Yeah, they, they don't say about the person. I don't think. Yeah, I don't see it. And when the team wasn't working on Dave the Diver, they're trying to find time to play uh, The Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. All right, let's go on. Last article um, is uh, I wanted to address the outrageous fine levied against NBC Universal. NBC Universal, uh, this is an article over in the Hometown Daily channel, um, which is the show. I say that a couple of times each episode, it seems. NBC Universal is slapped with a $250 fine for trimming trees along an LA sidewalk that had shaded actors and writers on strike. I cannot believe that they were fine. I mean, I'm just, it was exorbitant. The amount of money that they were fined for trimming trees. 
Anyway, NBC Universal was fined $250 after trimming trees that helped shade picketing writers and actors. Los Angeles Bureau of Street Services issued the fine for a citation of trimming without a permit. NBCU says it trims those trees yearly and didn't mean to take the shade away from WGA and SAG after members, even though now that's not true based on what other people are reporting. Um, Sarah Jackson over at businessinsider.com uh, put this article together. Um, the penalty is set for $250 for all first-time offenses, Mejia wrote. Uh, though fines can increase to $1,000 if there are more violations. Let's see here. In a statement, NBC said the tree trimming was routine. Um, there are people that have already responded to that saying new. Um, and uh, horticultural horticulturalists said you don't trim trees during this weather this season um and uh or herborous uh, members of the writers guild have been on strike since may among other things uh, they're calling for better pay as residual checks pay them are mere ch uh, pennies it's because everything is switched to um streaming and it wasn't in their contract so you know the studios can benefit from their hard work but they can't benefit from their own hard work um and the threat of ai um there is some um acknowledgement i guess that at least by the people that are going to be impacted by this that they have been hearing that background actors can be duplicated in ai um, because they don't have a speaking part. All they have to do is mill about and, and uh, you know, seemingly be human. And um, the actors just have to act as if those background actors are there. And so that is one of the things that they are worried about, which is basically background actors disappearing from the stage because uh, AI will be replacing them. They were joined uh, on the strike by SAG-AFTRA, the Actors Union, earlier this month. Writers Guild and SAG-AFTRA basically means that you're not getting any new shows, folks. Um, gone. So hopefully you've saved up lots of seasons of some show. Yep. So the fine, they say in this ar article, the $200, $250 fine, of course, amounts to less than a drop in the ocean. For the media giant NBC Universal's revenue for 2022, and this is revenue um, for 2022 calendar year, increased 14.2% to $39.2 billion. Do I need to do ASMR? Yes. Anytime we say billion, I think you should have some ASMR. Billion. Uh, and Universal Studios revenue for the same period increased 23% to $11.6 with the studio ranking second in worldwide box office for the year, according to an earnings release for Comcast, which owns NBC Universal. You know, anyway. Um, I, I don't know what to say about this. You know, um, it's only 1% of an actor's salary. I mean, it's so minuscule and the whole strike is about the fact that the, the industry is making less than the poverty level in many instances. Yeah. The fine yeah. is minuscule. 
Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the. So okay, so but it's not really. Uh, I mean, you can get a higher fine than that for, like, parking in the wrong area or something. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, um, but they're following the rules and leveraging a fine. Uh, now, if like, I, I'm sure if there were uh, more politically connected people with of greater perceived value by the various institutions and political elite, there would have been a an investigation, but it amounts to meh. <laughs> Um, and, and it's basically in an effort to get the strikers off the front lawn, get off my lawn, go, go shoot, shoot. It's like turning on the sprayer and spritzing the cat so that they stop fighting in my backyard or whatever, you know? I mean, that's basically what they're, it's just so weird. It's inhuman to, or inhumane, I should say. Um, to, to sit there and trim bushes in the freaking plasma summer, you know, I mean, it's so hot and humid that that has to be the only reason you don't, you don't denude an entire row of trees in front of your building in the middle of summer. Well, it's also bad for the um, landscapers because they're out there in that heat. Um, This is record temperatures, etc. I guarantee you they made more than 250 bucks. Um, That's like wildly expensive work right there. Um, Yeah, like trimming a bush is 250 bucks. Cutting back 30 trees is probably several thousand, many, many thousand. All right, folks. Well, that's the end of hometown daily for today. Um, we bring you back to the front page and then we refresh it. I don't know what's going to present itself. Um, so let's see threads web app in the works, but don't count on a Mac app for now. Um, well, you can't talk about Twitter anymore because it's not Twitter, right? It's X. Oh, it's X, right. Twitter X. Oh, and tweets are no longer tweets. They're X's. Yeah. Well, I saw something funny in hometown from Snopes, and it said something like our tweets now. I guess you say it's Zeets. <laughs> oh. With an X at the beginning. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, it's G's, right? It's like a oh, she. Oh, right, right, right. Um, just weird. Anyway. Oh, there's a sea lion standoff at the beach in San Diego. Oh, sea lions defend their territory at San Diego Beach. I bet you it's because they're hopped up on that toxic algae. Um, let's see. I don't know. Elon Musk X rebrand ignites his goal to turn Twitter into an app like Chan as WeChat. Oh, where have you heard that before? Mm. Oh, I don't know. Maybe from Mayor Watt. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. UPS strike averted after deal struck. There you go, folks. There's a bunch of articles that we will end up talking about tomorrow. 
12 of them as usual. If you're interested in this kind of stuff going on and having a conversation about it, come on back tomorrow at 9 p.m. Eastern. Where? Me, Marwat, and the AI up there will talk about that website right there, hometown.com. What do you say? You want to say goodnight to everybody there? Oh, great AI in the sky. Have a good night, hometown citizens. We will see you tomorrow at 9 p.m. Eastern. The AI is watching us all.